0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy, and I'm joined tonight by my friend, Dr. Mim Fox, and my other friend, Justin Stesh. Hello. Hi, Liz. Hello, Mim. Hello, Justin. Hi. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Look, we're here again. This is our October get together, Mim. I know. It's the highlight of my month, probably. It's my big social event before we come out of lockdown.
1: I know the weather is warming up and um, our government has decided to rush the end of lockdown along. So, um, you know, despite all of our colleagues in health sharing their fears about that, Liz, uh, that's what's going on. So get with the program and we'll um, get out there in the summer sun soon, hopefully.
0: Well, we'll just continue the ritual of coming together once a month to share another wonderful episode with our social work colleagues and friends and non-social work colleagues and friends. That's true. And my parents. (laughs) Okay. So before we begin, I just wanted to acknowledge that we are recording on Unceded Lands lands that speak witness to stories of past and present pain, heartache and removal due to invasion and colonisation, but that also speak of resilience, pride and sustained culture of the traditional custodians of these places. I'd like to acknowledge that uh, I am actually recording on Dharawal country and I wanted to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging And I also wanted to pay my respects to any First Nations people that are listening to this episode today. So, Mim, let's give a bit of an introduction to this wonderful episode that we're bringing. Yeah, definitely. So, Liz,
1: this is an episode that, you know, I've been excited about for a really long time. Um, And we've talked this year about how... The International Federation of Social Work um, declared that their theme for this year and next is going to be Ubuntu. And we've talked a little bit about Ubuntu at a couple of different points throughout the year. But this is an episode where we really wanted to highlight the philosophy of Ubuntu to our listeners so that, um, you know, we are in such a heavily Western profession, Liz. Right. Like when you think about the history of social work around the world, uh, it really has such a dominant Western perspective. And in the international sphere, this notion of a universal social work, one social work that crosses all sorts of different cultures and operates in all different cultural contexts has been debated and debated and debated. Right. And so as time's gone on, there's been this push for an indigenized social work. And across the world, there are many countries now that have really embraced this and done a lot of work around what an indigenous social work would look like for their culture. So this episode is really exciting because it's a time where we get to hear from two African social workers about Ubuntu And about how Ubuntu actually looks in practice
0: uh, for social work. So it's exciting. Yeah. And Mim, there are two, as you mentioned, there are two African social workers that we're going to hear from. Um, The first part of the episode is from a colleague of yours. That's right. So
1: the colleague of mine is uh, Dr. Jacob Rugare Mugubate, and Jacob is a Zimbabwean social work academic um, and practitioner, past practitioner, and he uh, specialises in the field of Ubuntu and the philosophy of Ubuntu. So rather than us describing and explaining what Ubuntu is, Liz, I think we should listen from Jacob and really hear from him about how Ubuntu is understood. Uh, in Africa
0: which is where it's from. That sounds like a great idea so we'll listen to Jacob and then we'll come back and then we'll go into our next part of the episode which as you say is a practice piece by an African social worker who's working in Australia. That's right.
2: So, Ubuntu developed in the western parts of Africa. For those who know Africa, these are areas around uh, Nigeria, areas around uh, Cameroon, uh, Burkina Faso, and the uh, like. But then people migrated. Uh, in different uh, directions, others went uh, down to East Africa, where you find countries like Kenya, countries like the Congo. Others moved uh, in the eastern direction to countries like uh, Uganda today, countries like uh, Rwanda, countries like um, uh, Tanzania. So uh, people migrated. Others um, went even further down uh, to um, South Africa. Uh, when they met uh, the sea, they, others uh, started the journey going up, but others settled in uh, South Africa when they moved the philosophy the value of ubuntu they they moved with it so it was spread across um, africa so you find the value uh in all of africa there is often a misconception that uh, it is found in africa in south africa no it's uh, not only in south africa but it was um, uh, popularized internationally by people from south africa especially uh, archbishop desmond tutu uh, but also uh, former south african president uh, nelson um, Mandela. They popularized Ubuntu uh, internationally, but it has always existed in Africa. It exists uh, today. Uh, During the colonial period, uh, especially in professional services, Ubuntu was uh, mostly um, ignored. Uh, It was uh, neglected. It was thrown away. But uh, Ubuntu uh, survived, which is why uh, today uh, we um, are talking about uh, Ubuntu. uh, And for social work, uh, you know that uh, this year, Ubuntu was chosen as the theme for International uh, Social Work Day by the International Federation of uh, Social uh, Workers. So that's an important uh, step. But it doesn't uh, mean that Uh, Ubuntu uh, started a few years ago, it has always uh, existed in uh, different uh, formats, so that's Ubuntu. Uh, Where does the word come from? That's that's another question people uh, often uh, ask. So uh, Africa, uh, as you know it uh, today, it is a different um, uh, racial group. The majority of the people, they are identified to as uh, black people. That's from uh, Western language and uh, culture. We are referred to uh, as black. But we don't uh, refer to ourselves that way. We refer to ourselves as uh, UNU, that's if you come from my country or from my language, is Zimbabwe, I come from Zimbabwe. We say we are Vanu. that's what we call ourselves. In South Africa, you will be called a uh, Bundu, in Botswana, you will be called a Boto, in countries uh, further east, you will be called an Utu, uh, and in Mozambique, you will be called a uh, Boto. Uh, You go to uh, West Africa, they are all different um, uh, names. And uh, when you look at the names linguistically, they borrow from one thing, uh, they borrow from one noun, which is Utu, which means uh, human uh, being. So when I say I am uh, Munu, uh, I am uh, Bundu, I'm saying I'm I'm an African uh, human being. So that's what we refer to ourselves uh, as. So the word Ubuntu, which is in Zulu language, came from uh, that aspect, what we refer to ourselves as. I uh, say that Munu, Utu, butu, Boto, Uboto, they just, that just varies from uh, language to language, but that is a common origin. So that's where uh, the word uh, Ubuntu uh, came from. So earlier I talked about the popular noun for Ubuntu being Ubuntu because it was popularized from South Africa where their language, in their language, uh, Zulu, which is the most popular language name is uh, ubuntu but you go to my country we don't use um, uh, ubuntu but we say uh, munu so in this talk i will be um, using those uh, words interchangeably uh, ubuntu uh, unu but i also be using uh, other words from other uh, countries like um, utu or boto or mundu they do all mean um, uh, the same thing so ubuntu is known differently in different languages but it is uh, one thing with a common origin. So that's important for people to uh, understand that uh, Ubuntu uh, is not uh, South African, but it's um, African and it's the overarching um, uh, value or a philosophy of uh, black uh, people of Africa. That's uh, really uh, very uh, important. In Ubuntu, it's not about the individual is about the family and the community. So we go beyond the uh, individual. So when we are talking about Ubuntu, that overarching value is that the individual exists within a family, an extended family, a community, a country, and environment. So all those things are important when I look at an individual. I shouldn't look at an individual and it ends there. So it's about... What is around the individual? And that's the family, including the extended family. That's the community. That's country. Then that's the environment. All those are really important aspects. And there is one larger aspect that uh, circles all of them. That is spirituality. It's really. Um, uh, important. And when professional social work was uh, introduced, Ubuntu as a philosophy. Theories that come out of Ubuntu, values and methods that come out of Ubuntu, they were neglected. But people are talking about indigenization today. People are talking about decolonization today, which is why you find more of um, uh, Ubuntu uh, values in uh, social work. For example, in the Code of Ethics of uh, the National Association of Social Workers in Zimbabwe, Ubuntu is the uh, first uh, value. In South Africa's uh, social development uh, strategy, that's not the, 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 the name for it, but I'm just uh, trying to refer to it here. They have got Ubuntu as uh, one of the uh, values that guide how they provide social uh, development services, including social assistance, uh, grants, and uh, the like. In social work literature today, you'll find a lot of uh, literature on Ubuntu. Uh, you find literature relating to, for example, uh, COVID now. you find literature relating to using Ubuntu or methods of Ubuntu or what Ubuntu is. So uh, Ubuntu is really shaping uh, social work in the uh, African uh, perspective. When you are doing a casework in Africa, you are really doing uh, family work, which is why I'm referring or starting at this level, doing uh, social work with families. There are several Ubuntu concepts, or we call them maxims. Uh, to think about when you are working with uh, families. So these are values. In other instances, they will be called ethics, and I'll just talk about uh, a few of these. Uh, there's a value of ukama. Ukama is about relations and valuing uh, relations. It is these relations that you use as a social worker to deal with um, child protection issues, uh, child warfare issues. There's also another concept called arambe. That's, that's an Ubuntu concept. It means uh, being together as a community. So, Beyond the family, there is community. So if there are child protection issues uh, within um, uh, the family, it will also be important to go beyond the family to include the community. It is within the community that when a child needs a place of safety, they will uh, find it. There is another one that is called kagisano. Kagisano is used in um, Eastern Africa, especially in uh, Rwanda. This is about uh, good neighborliness because uh, support comes from our neighbors. Uh, that's uh, really uh, important. There are also other important concepts like uh, Shosholoza uh, from South Africa. This is about uh, working together. There's also kuumba which is about uh, being creative when you are working with uh, families. But there are many other concepts or many other values uh, that come out of Ubuntu that will be useful when you are working with um, uh, families. It is an experience. It is used uh, all the time. It shapes what um, uh, people do, the way Uh, people think, but more importantly, the way we think about social work. So when we think about social work, the starting point, the value, uh, the philosophy is Ubuntu. Then everything else, the methods that we use, the strategies that we use, the literature uh, that we use, they all come out of uh, Ubuntu, which is the over-etching um, uh, philosophy. Uh, literature is really important in uh, when we talk about um, uh, Ubuntu. It goes beyond what is written. We talk about orature, which is non-written literature and is really valued in uh, Ubuntu. So when you are a social worker, when you are thinking about what Literature can shape my teaching or my learning or my practice. Also think about non-written literature that comes in the forms of maxims, like Munumunu, Nekudakwevanu, Mwanandewe wese." all those are maxims that uh, shape uh, or that contribute to uh, social work uh, literature. Even though they are non-written, they are not published in journal articles, but they contribute to uh, social work. So there is a lot uh, to talk about um, uh, Ubuntu and as social workers, uh, Ubuntu gives us an opportunity uh, to practice in a way that looks at individuals as members of a family, uh, a community, country, environment, but also as beings that belong to a spiritual uh, world. So Liz, that was uh, Jacob. um...
1: The, my colleague speaking about ubuntu and the philosophy of ubuntu and gosh i love i absolutely love the way he describes the different elements of the philosophy and how it can
0: actually look in practice i did too and i wish that i had have had access to this information in march this year when we had our world social work day forum in the area in which i live and we just kind of had Ubuntu as part of the, the title of our forum, but none of us had the, the understanding of what it actually meant. I think there was a one line slogan attached to it. Yeah. Um, but Jacob has, has, I really appreciate Jacob's um, explanation. It's really deep in my understanding of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I teach students, social work students from all over the world, Liz, and they are always trying to wrestle with what is a social work worldview? How how do they approach the social work perspective on the world around them? And to actually be able to Take different philosophies from different cultural contexts, you know, Eastern philosophies, Western philosophies, Ubuntu, and to be able to actually bring them together to enrich the social work worldview, I think is really, really valuable and important, right? Like, otherwise, we get really weighed down in this heavily Western dominated perspective,
0: which is so deeply individualistic, actually, at heart. So I totally agree with you. And I guess that's a lovely segue into this next part of the episode, Mim. So what is it about this next story that you think embodies the the theme of Ubuntu? So this episode um, is actually going to
1: now bring us into a a practice story by a Zimbabwean social worker who. um, is actually practicing in an Australian context and so what she's going to talk about Liz is a domestic violence case that she worked on uh, with a woman um, who was uh, leaving a, um, a past relationship and uh, First thing we should say to our listeners is that there is um, some descriptions of quite graphic violence Mm. at the beginning of the story. Um, So please, listeners, take care of yourselves around that. Um, As we we often say, you know, that you can skip ahead. At the beginning of the story if you need to join us in the next episode it's totally your call but please just be aware of that and take care of yourselves but if you are able to stick with it and stay with us then I think what is really interesting about this story is that we've told domestic violence stories on this podcast Liz before but now we're looking at it with this Ubuntu lens and so what I really want the listeners to be thinking about at this point is where is the voice of the community in this story? Where is the the approach that actually um, supports this woman in what could be a very individual circumstance and situation, and how is the social worker working with her around that community support, okay? so. Let's put that challenge out there to our listeners and we'll speak to you again at the end of the story.
3: Hello, good afternoon. I am a social worker, uh, currently working and supporting uh, women uh, affected by domestic and family violence. So the service that I am working for for those of you who may not be familiar with, is we get mostly of most of our referrals directly from the police. So when a woman is facing any kind of family or domestic violence, they would make a report to the police, and then the police would refer that woman to us. So when we make contact with the woman, it's still pretty fresh. The event is still pretty fresh in her mind, and so she would still be feeling quite uh, traumatised by what would have happened. It is a phone-based referral service, and as I'm sure most of you would know, that sometimes cold calling someone who's just gone through... A traumatic incident can be challenging and it can be hard to build a strong and immediate connection with the person on the other end of the phone, but this is something that we learned to work with and because sometimes people feel really um, exposed and they feel vulnerable because we know so much about some deep and personal things happening in their lives. So that can be a bit of a challenge. But the case that I want to talk to you today is is about jazz. So she was a 19-year-old young woman and the referral came to us and as soon as we received it, I made contact with her on the phone. And obviously when we make the initial contact, we are wanting to check to see if she's physically safe and offer her any immediate support. So I made sure that she understood what my role was and that I was there just to walk alongside her and to support her with whatever support she may be needing at the time. And as we were speaking on the phone, I made sure that she felt safe and knew that she wasn't alone and that she wasn't responsible or to blame for what had happened with her husband. You know, and understandably, she was very emotional. She was crying. You know, she couldn't believe that this has happened. And she said that she and her husband had had a verbal argument which had escalated and resulted in him becoming physically abusive and he assaulted her. Their argument came about because he hadn't paid the rent, and she'd asked him about it, and he didn't like that. So he was a regular cannabis user and would sometimes use the rent money to buy drugs. And obviously she was worried that this might have happened, and so she thought it best to talk to him about it. She said that during the incident, he slept on the face numerous times, dragged on the carpet, and he applied excessive force around her neck and she had been unable to breathe for a few seconds and almost blacked out. So it was a really, really serious incident. As a result of the assault, Jazz had sustained serious bruises on her face, on her body, and also around the neck. I explained to Jazz the seriousness of non-fatal strangulation and the importance of reporting that to the doctor as soon as possible. You know, she said that she was feeling fine and she had taken everything quite lightly, like she didn't really think there was anything to it. But I did encourage her to make sure that she gets to the doctor and make sure that, you know, least she gets an X-ray or someone to look at the neck to make sure that there hadn't been any kind of internal damage. She said that this was not the first time that her husband had assaulted her, but it was the first time that she had actually reported it to the police. So it was a big deal, It was a big step for her. And she was, you know, grateful that the police had come, but also feeling nervous about what it would mean long term in terms of her relationship. So she explained that during the incident, uh, she managed to lock herself in the bathroom. She called the police. And then when her husband found out that she had called the police, he fled from the family home. And so by the time the police arrived, he was not there anymore, he had left. And Jazz went on to disclose that she was actually eight months pregnant with their first child. And after the assault, she had actually noticed that she had some vaginal bleeding. So a lot of things, you know, a lot of revelation, a lot of things going on in Jazz's life. She expressed that she was worried that something may have happened to the baby. And obviously, because the incident had only just happened, she hadn't gone to the doctor yet for a checkup. And I strongly encourage her to make sure that she gets that done as soon as possible, just to present to emergency and make sure that they have a look at her, check the baby, just to make sure that everything was still fine. I mean, based on what Jazz had disclosed so far in our conversation, it was clear that she was what we would call a serious threat client because she had experienced significant physical injuries, she was pregnant, her husband was a drug user and she had limited social support from family and friends. And also her age, like she was only 19, so really, really young. Um, She said that after the police had taken her statement, she went to a friend's house because she didn't feel safe staying at home alone. Although her husband had fled, she was afraid that he might come back and hurt her because he might be angry that she had called the police. For her protection, the police had taken out an apprehended domestic violence order and the husband had been excluded from the home, so he wasn't allowed to come back, and he wasn't allowed to have any contact with her. So at least that way, you know, she was safe from him, and also he was charged uh, with common assault and intentionally choking a person. Jazz was happy that the police had responded and that they had come as you know, as soon as she called them, but obviously she was nervous about what the A V A would mean for her and her relationship, and having to go to court and, you know, to give evidence in court. This was something that obviously she had never done before, and she was worried about it. But I explained to her that it's, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was there because she needed that protection, she needed to be taken care of, and so that's the police way of making sure that she was kept safe. Ja said that she was really scared, uh, you know, of her husband and everything that had happened that day. And she said that she knew that he wouldn't be happy about the AVO. She said that she was scared that, you know, this might mean the relationship would end and she would become a single parent. You know, and I can understand her worry because, you know, she was young and she wasn't working at the time. And so becoming a single parent would seem like a really scary thing for her to have to deal with. She was worried about what she would do financially. She was dependent on her husband uh, for financial support. She said that she knew that she wouldn't be able to pay any of the rent without him supporting her financially. And she said although he was, you know, hurting her and abusive, she still wanted their child to have some kind of relationship with him. And so with all of these things in her mind, she was worried about how the AVO would impact all of that. I explained to Jazz that she had done the right thing by calling the police because she and her unborn child were not safe with him. I let her know that her safety and the safety of her unborn child were the most important things and that's what she had to focus on for now, making sure that she stays safe, making sure that the baby was healthy. She went on to tell me that she and her husband were actually in an arranged marriage. They had been together for about a year. Uh, Their families were from the same community. She said when they first got together, the relationship was pretty good. You know, he was charming, he was attentive, but with time, things changed. He became more controlling. Then there was physical, emotional, psychological abuse, a lot of verbal and financial abuse as well. He socially isolated her from her friends, he didn't want her to talk to anybody of the opposite sex, and he would often check her phone constantly just to see who she had messaged or who she had spoken to. And obviously, you know, she didn't really like that, but you know, she felt like she had no choice. If anyone from her extended family phoned her, he demanded that she put the phone on speaker so that he would know exactly what was being said, because he was afraid that she would tell her family the truth about the abuse in the relationship. She said that the relationship was not always bad. They had good times too. And I explained to her that, yes, that's understandable, you know, because we spoke about the the cycle of violence and how often perpetrators will threaten violence, strike their victim, apologise and then promise to change. And then things seem to be better for a while. And then again, that cycle repeats itself. I let her know that, you know, that's how they keep people in their control because they promise to change, but nothing actually changes. And so I said to her, you know, he might say he will change, but there's no guarantee that he will because, you know, the past has shown that the violence keeps coming back, that, you know, it is a a cycle. Culturally, she said that she felt like she was letting her family down because this was something that was arranged between the families and, you know, the families knew each other well. And she said that she wasn't sure how she was going to face them because she wasn't sure how they were going to react to the news that you know she had called the police and that an AVO had been taken out. And oftentimes her family had told her that you know if there were any issues in the marriage, it should be dealt with as a family, and so she was never encouraged to report anything to any outsiders. So she was always told it was private and had to be dealt with within the family. And she said that she felt embarrassed that she had called the police and you know she felt embarrassed about how people were going to look at her in their community. She said she felt like they would judge her. And she felt a sense of shame. You know, I let Jazz know that she was not responsible for her husband's behavior and that she hadn't done anything wrong. I made it clear to her that what she did was an act of courage, that she was protecting herself and that she didn't have to feel embarrassed about anything. Obviously, I understand the pressures that come with, you know, culture and trying to please your family and the people that, you know, you live with. But I let her know that at the end of the day, what is the most important thing is for her, for her to be safe, for her to feel safe wherever she is. And so if a relationship is not safe, she has every right to report any kind of criminal behaviour to police. I explained to Jazz that because we were concerned about what had happened, we would be making a report to child protection because we were concerned about the unborn uh, child safety. I made it clear to her that it was her husband's behaviour that was of concern to us and not her behaviour, and so that she would understand that child protection's involvement would be to support her and her child to make sure that they were safe, that it was not in any way about her child being taken away because I know that sometimes that's what people are afraid of. And that's why she hadn't reported a lot of it in the past because she was afraid that something like that might happen. So as we were talking over the phone, we did some safety planning. I encouraged her to make sure that she keeps all the doors around the house locked so that in case if the husband does try to come back for whatever reason she would you know she would be safe and that he wouldn't be able to gain entry into the home. I told her to make sure that he wasn't tracking her on the phone so that he would know where she was or following her or you know that she should be you know if she is going out of home that she should make sure that she is aware of her surroundings she's looking around making sure that no one was following her. I encourage her to report all breaches of the AVO to the police, report any kind of threatening behaviour, whether directly from him or any of his family members, because according to the AVO, no one should be making any contact with her or making any kind of threats to her. And so I also explained to her that some of the support that we could provide her. You know, I know she was very worried about her finances, so... I helped her to apply for a crisis payment through Centrelink, although it wasn't a huge amount of money, but at least it would help her to pay for any of her immediate needs. And I also referred Jazz to the antenatal social workers at the local hospital, and also the domestic violence counselling support at the hospital to make sure that she was getting that support, that she was talking to someone about what had been happening in her relationship. And making sure that the social workers were also aware of what was going on in her relationship. I also helped Jazz to apply for housing in a new area away from the husband. Obviously, the housing process does take a bit of time. So this is not something that happened straight away. But we did help her to put in an application. And at least that way, she knew that she would have somewhere safe to go to. Hopefully, by the time the baby was born, she would potentially be living somewhere else, somewhere safer. We also helped Jazz to source new things for the baby because she still hadn't bought some clothes and, you know, the and prams and things like that. So I made sure that we got those sourced for her and they were delivered to where she was living at the time. We also helped Jazz to apply for financial support through victim services. So she was able to get the $5,000 immediate needs support package. Which would help her with whatever immediate expenses she needed when with moving and buying new furniture. So that way I made her realize that even though things might be a little bit challenging and a bit scary that there was support available for her to access and that we would be there to support her with whatever she needed. We also advocated for her in terms of the AVO uh, because she did want to have contact with her husband although things were not great between them. She still wanted to be able to have some kind of contact. And so we were able to advocate on her behalf and we spoke to the police and we asked them to vary that AVO so that she was allowed to have contact because obviously this was important to her. This was something that she wanted. Obviously, we wouldn't have encouraged that at the time, but this was something that she felt she needed. And so we were happy to support her. And so when she did have to go to court, we made sure that she was safe in the safe room and we um, made sure that she was able to speak to the judicial solicitor regarding anything that she was concerned about and you know making sure that all her questions were asked were answered with regards to the legal process when it comes to the abo and throughout my you know my interaction with jazz i realized that you know she was a really young girl and she felt so alone and she felt really scared And I imagine that was very scary for her. And so throughout my conversation, I applauded her for her courage and her bravery in making that call to the police and reporting her husband's criminal behaviour because I imagine that was really difficult. You know, like she said, it wasn't the first time that it had happened, but she decided that it was time that it all stopped. And so I let her know that, you know, living a relationship is very difficult. Even if it is an abusive relationship, because obviously she had attachment to this person, they were expecting their child, their first child together, and you know their families knew each other, so there was an existing relationship even before they got married, and so this was all you know all attached to this relationship, and so I understood that obviously it would be difficult for her. I also let her know that obviously the first few months after leaving the relationship may be challenging and having a newborn would be an added pressure, but I did make a note that we would be there to support her throughout her journey, whatever she needed, that we were an available support and that she didn't need to feel alone. You know, despite everything that she had been through, Jazz did say that she was looking forward to being a parent and she couldn't wait to meet her baby. And she said that she was able to speak to her parents and let them know what had happened. And, you know, to her surprise, they were very supportive of her and she was able to stay with them for a while while she was waiting for the housing to be approved. So it was really a difficult situation for Jazz. But she was able to get the support that she needed and she was able to still look forward to the future. And so I really think that, you know, that goes to show that you know even though things may be difficult but if you know that you are supported that you are not alone that you've got a community standing behind you it does make taking those difficult steps a little bit more less scary so you know knowing that she had a team of people on her side willing to do whatever it took to make sure that she and her baby were safe it makes a difference.
0: So that was a really, again, another instructive piece too, Mim. Like despite um, your I- introduction about listening for the community or how Ubuntu was woven into the practice of the social workers' um, engagement with Jez, it was also very instructive in, in relation to really good DV practice around safety so all of those essential social work practice is embedded into this the the lens was certainly on the safety of this woman but I'm curious about your thoughts about what was what you heard in this that suggested that there was that Ubuntu Ubuntu that was that was woven into the practice of this social worker.
1: Yeah, for me, it was very much about the keen sense of isolation that the social worker was cluing into with this woman. That actually, you know, sometimes it's very easy for us to do the practical assistance. And like you say, to focus on the safety issues and to, um, you know, and she did, she did all that. She linked her in with our Social Security Service Centrelink and she linked her in with, you know, financial support and da la da la But actually, to really clue in to the sense of isolation and, you know, that cultural context that this woman was coming from, where it was an arranged marriage that she was in, her families had told her that everything needed to be resolved within the, the family, and yet she had made this very brave step and had to come out of that, right? And so she was really being challenged by everything she believed up until this point in her life about her marriage and so uh, for me it was the emphasis that the social worker gave on cushioning her in community towards the end and on supporting her to not feel that sense of isolation moving forward. Um, Now you know we might say that that is something we should be doing in social work practice anyway and I would be saying yes that that is the lesson of Ubuntu and that I think is what we come back to what Jacob was saying originally, is that Ubuntu is grounded in these, in these ethics and values that are completely in line with social work practice and that actually embodying Ubuntu is, is not and should not be foreign to us in our practice. I think there's also an awareness that we need to have when working with African families, that Ubuntu is so prolific throughout Africa, that actually when you think about the history that Jacob gave about Ubuntu and how it spread throughout the um, continent, that actually um, having that sense of cultural humility and understanding is vital actually in working with, um, with these families, really vital.
0: Mim, what you've just said, I, I think I'll be contemplating this for a while. I think what you're actually saying to me and to our listeners is the importance of values, our own values in relation to working with our clients. But in fact I like I think that Ubuntu would enrich my practice. Like I I think the way in which it's described Will have me reflecting for quite some time around what how I could incorporate that lens if you like for want of a better expression into my thinking about my my clinical work in particular um and like I wish I like I'm also going to bring this into my supervision sessions with social workers I think um this would be a great example to actually have people that I supervise listen to and to be then reflecting on how how does something like this impact on your practice? How could you be incorporating this particular value into your practice? Because you're right, I come from a very white, privileged background and I think it's been a great addition to my thinking about my practice and I really, I really value what um, this particular social worker has brought to my thinking but also what Jacob's actually shared with us and, and how you've been able to, um, I guess, um, uh, summarise it for, for myself and the listeners. So I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, that's absolutely my pleasure, Liz, but also I think um, for the social work students out there, Struggling with your values when you first come into social work is really common, like really common. But it doesn't stop, Mim. It doesn't it doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at all. But, you know, for for students and, you know, I work with students who they're master's students. So they're older. They've often lived a life before they've come to their social work studies. And so usually they're coming from a different professional background. um, And it's sometimes it's quite a shock. To realise that social justice is the grounding of our profession, right? To realise that actually it's it, embodying a value that puts other people's perspectives in front of your own is actually a thing, right? Is mm-hmm. actually an important value to hold. Like, and I think, and then what I often see with students is that they struggle between, well, what's a personal value that might be really interwoven with religious. Um, or spiritual, uh, you know, um, discourse that they've heard throughout their lives um, or family, cultural, you know, connotations and messaging. And then where does that sit with professional values? And then we go back to what is codes of ethics, which are inherently a Western construct, right? Like they really are. To dictate a list of values to people is such a Western way of doing something, right? So to actually hear Jacob say that Ubuntu is a philosophy that has been in existence for such a long time, that is an oral philosophy and only recently has been put into the code of ethics, the African code of ethics, is actually, I think, really important for us to take on board that actually there are many ways of understanding values and many ways of incorporating different values
0: in with your social work practice. And it, I, I will say it again, Mim, it's not about the social work students. It's not just about you guys. Like I've been 36 years as a social worker and this has actually really made me reflect on my own values and my practice. So it shouldn't stop. It's, you know, let's can encourage this in in our social workers as well Mim.
1: yeah we go back to the, our, the notion that we love so much Liz about lifelong learning and about ongoing development yeah yeah, yeah that's awesome oh, on that note um I think we can end our discussion there Liz and uh, it's always such a great discussion to have isn't it like I don't know that we've had this um really just Uh, grounding conversation about values in this way before so this is really lovely here's here's to many more
0: to come Mim
1: absolutely Um, take care everyone we hope you're all doing all right out there and taking care of each other and yourselves and um, we will be in touch again in our next episode all the best
0: and thank you and over to this wonderful outro that Justin has created for us Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Bye, everyone. Bye.
4: Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice, no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work that we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com, The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Justin Stesch, Liz Murphy, and Dr. Mim Fox. Thanks so much for listening.